All right, today's passage is from Matthew 18, 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This is the word of the Lord. All right, welcome everybody. It's great to see all of you. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Brody. I have been serving at Oak as the um, intern. Every year we get an intern from Duke Divinity School, and this year that was me. Yeah. So um, happy third week of Easter. Um, Chris uh, reminded us last week that Easter is not just a moment, it's a new reality, right? The resurrection of Jesus is not just about your sin or my sin, but it's also about the beginning of a revolution to build a family out of the broken pieces of an empire, to create communion where there once was division, and to create death where there once was life. And so as we might be ready to put away the chocolate eggs and we've had enough of the bunnies and the peeps are starting to get stale. We need to remember that Easter is a new reality. Chris told me that he really likes stale peeps, which I cannot relate with. I don't like fresh peeps, if that even exists. Uh, anyway, um, you keep your peeps. Um, <laughs> but even as we're ready to sort of settle into ordinary time, we're learning to remember that Easter is a world that has embraced us as much as it's a day and a moment. And so just like an obnoxious, overly cheery sibling, you'll either learn to love it and, and let it bring joy to you, or you'll have to live in resentment with it because there's no getting rid of it. And so as we're celebrating Easter and learning to celebrate Easter and thinking about transformation and new realities, um, I've been thinking a lot about sort of my own transformation and, and new reality because this is my last day as the Oak student intern. But don't, don't worry, don't be sad, or depending on how you feel about me, don't rejoice. Um, because I'm not going anywhere. Um, I'm, I'm sticking around in Durham. Um, I'm still gonna be serving at Oak. I'm still gonna be serving with the youth group. Um, but after today, I won't have this role at, as the intern. Um, and so, this is a weird transition moment for me because not only am I shifting away from the internship, but I'm also shifting away from studenthood. I've been, I've been a full-time student since I was five years old. Um, and, and I'm starting to transition from a life of primarily learning to a life of primarily teaching. And, and that's a really weird and uh, meaningful transformation. And it's got me thinking a lot. Um, and I think the timing of this feels significant to me, right? My, my transition into this new chapter of life is right in the middle of Easter. Um, in fact, I finished my final, final paper on Holy Saturday. And that was when I, like Jesus Christ himself, descended into the darkness, battling the evil forces, Jesus, sin and death, me, jargon-filled articles and long, heady books. And then I hit submit and emerged victorious on Easter Sunday leaving my old self, the student, in the grave and emerging as a master of divinity. You can master divinity. <laughs> I did it. 
This is one of those transition moments in my life um, that mark my journey from childhood to adulthood. Um, and at this moment in my life, I'm prompted to pause and reflect on, on what it has meant for me to be a student all this time and what it has meant for me to be a child all of this time. Easter is a time when we think about newness, youngness, rebirth, and with rebirth comes re-childhood. Jesus clearly thought it was really important that we pay attention to the world of children. In this passage, he settles a dispute about prestige with the example of a child. When most of us see or interact with a child, what we see is a potential adult. And so we tell them to stop picking their nose and stop being disruptive and stop running around because all of those habits are going to have to change if they are to become proper adults. But Jesus doesn't see a potential adult. He sees something of the kingdom of God that he thinks grown-ups among us have forgotten as the weight of an exhausting and sin-filled world comes to bear on us over time. In the next chapter of Matthew's gospel from our passage today, children try to run up to Jesus while he's teaching. His disciples step out in defense of the great teacher. After all, such serious lessons that Jesus is giving are clearly the business of grown-ups. But Jesus says, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Now, I wonder what precisely Jesus meant when he said this, or when in today's text, he tells us to change and become more like little children. I've heard lots of people try to extract the precise point that Jesus was trying to make, but that just feels like a very adult way of understanding Jesus's teachings here. And I wonder if sometimes that kind of precision can miss the point. And I wonder if we're supposed to learn from children just not to take ourselves so seriously. There's a classical music educator named Benjamin Zander. He's a wild, goofy British man. Um, he is a music educator, a school instructor, a professor, and he was conductor of the Boston Philharmonic. And he says that of all of the people that he has taught, the ones that have the hardest time learning to play an instrument are the adults who take themselves too seriously. When they make a mistake, they get all down on themselves or, or they're too nervous to start a piece because they know that they don't have all of the technique down and they haven't practiced all of their scales. Um, and so he has one rule with these students, which is don't take yourself so seriously. He says, you're just playing the cello. This isn't neurosurgery. This isn't forensic investigation. This is play. It's fun. Stop taking yourself so seriously. And I don't know how many of you have seen Ted Lasso, um, but there's a moment in Ted Lasso where uh, the captain of a British Premier League soccer team, football team, um, has to help a player get out of his head. And this player is Isaac McAdoo. That's the guy on the left here. Um, and uh, Isaac McAdoo, he's kind of being set up to be the next captain. And so um, it's really important that he can play well and lead others. But he seems to not be able to get out of his head. He keeps making little mistakes. Um, he can't loosen up and just play. And by definition, play is done for its own sake. But once McAdoo needed to make a living and needed to please sponsors and needed to you know, support the fans and not let them down and, and not let down the owner, all of a sudden play became work. So the team captain, Roy Kent, takes 
McAdoo to the inner city soccer field where he played as a, as a kid. And he tells him to join in on a pickup game that's going on. So Isaac starts playing. And all of a sudden, the pressure of sponsors and owners and managers and fans, which had begun, begun to weigh on him, started to disappear. And he could just play. He plays a pickup game on a low-budget inner-city field. And he stops taking himself so seriously. Afterwards, Roy Kent, in his Roy Kent voice and with a lot more colorful language than I'm going to use here, he says, it's just a game that you used to play for fun. If you want to be great, either in the kingdom of God or on the football pitch, it begins with not taking yourself so seriously. What happened to McAdoo has probably happened to all of us. Maybe you began your life's work with curiosity, intrigue, thoughtfulness, hopefulness, and now all of that has been replaced by deadlines and stress and family responsibilities, control and pressure. But that's the curious thing about play. It isn't work, and yet it's the work of children. That's what Maria Montessori said, and that's the foundation of Montessori learning. That's also the insight and foundation of godly play, which we practice here in our kids' ministry. Play is not merely something that children like to do. It's not merely something that children will do when unhindered by the restrictive imposition of adults. But play is something children must do. Play is a child's process of testing the boundaries of the world. I don't know if, if you've ever seen those robot Roomba vacuums, but um, if when you first bring one home, uh, it has to learn the room. And so what it will do is just bump into stuff. And be like, oh, there's a wall, there's a dog, there's a couch, whatever. And it'll, and it'll kind of map your room. But the first step is to just smack into things. And it'll just roll all around the house smacking into things. And it's really funny to watch. Um, and that's how it learns its boundaries. And that's an image of the work of a child. Playing with boundaries is how children come to know how safe they are. How safe am I when I sneak a cookie? How safe am I when I stay out past curfew? How safe am I when I run through the parking lot even though I was just told not to? Some children live in circumstances in which they come to learn that the risk of crossing boundaries is very great. These are children who live in traumatic and dangerous environments. They learn to build walls and, and find techniques of survival to close in their boundaries. Children with neurological differences may find their boundaries in places that puzzle you. I have friends who have found boundaries in the kinds of materials that they are willing to wear or the noise levels that they can tolerate. They may find a boundary in a place that you did not or find no boundary in a place where you found one. But it's not your business to question them with your cold, boring adult logic. It's your business to honor them and to join the child in their project of feeling safe and doing the work of play. I wonder if Jesus wanted us to learn from children because children are, by nature, learners. Not only are they learning their boundaries, but they're learning everything else as well. That's one of the strange things about this moment in life because I'm, I'm transitioning from being primarily a learner to primarily a teacher. And this teaching and learning, these are essential elements in a life with Jesus. And when we have one without the other, we can have an incomplete formation. After his resurrection, when he was 
sending out his disciples to do their work, he told them to make disciples. And this may just as easily be translated, make students. Jesus spent his life gathering learners, teaching them the way of God's kingdom and the path to a life of union with God. And then he sent them to go gather more learners. But adulthood can bring us to a strange place where we are far from teaching and learning. Teaching and learning are replaced with stressing and working. Even when adults teach, they sometimes approach it as work instead of wonder. Henry Nouwen, a teacher and Catholic author, wrote, Teaching asks, first of all, the creation of a space where students and teachers can enter into a fearless communication with each other and allow their respective life experiences to be their primary and most valuable source of growth and maturation. It asks for a mutual trust in which those who teach and those who want to learn can become present to each other, not as opponents, but as those who share in the same struggle and search for the same truth. Learning begins with the posture of a child, but it's not exclusively the work of a child. A life with Jesus is a life spent learning. The godly playrooms here at Oak have these little paper lamps that hang from the ceiling. And if you're a tall person, if you're a grown-up, you'll bump your head on them. This is not a bug. This is a feature of the godly playrooms. Pastor Meg calls those bumps reminders. In the godly playroom, you'll need to remember that you have entered the world of a young learner. And so if, instead of standing tall and commanding the space, you'll sit on the floor and wonder. Consider the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. Jesus visits the home of Mary and Martha, and Martha, brought up to be a proper first century Palestinian grown-up woman, she begins to take care of all of the preparations that had to be made. They're hosting a guest, right? Mary, meanwhile, sits on the floor and listens to Jesus teach. Martha was doing what she was supposed to do. And yet Jesus tells her that Mary has chosen the good portion. And this posture of sitting and learning shall not be taken from her. In this encounter, Mary is at once transcending what the culture would have allowed for women by taking the role of a male disciple. Right? The, the disciple of ra disciples of rabbis who sit on the floor and learn from a rabbi, that was a role excluded from women, reserved for men. So she's transcending that role by being a woman disciple, and yet she's also condescending to the posture of a child in curiosity and wonder, sitting on the floor. When children sit on the floor and listen, it's not going to be because they're intrigued by a lecture. Children don't nod thoughtfully and hum at the logical connections that an, an insightful teacher makes. There's a reason why when Mary and Joseph lost the boy Jesus and eventually found him listening to the rabbis and thoughtfully humming and nodding, they were totally perplexed because God maybe can do that, right? But most children don't learn that way. That's not the sort of thing that most people uh, want to listen to, especially not most children. If you're going to capture the attention of a child, it's likely going to be in the art of storytelling. Children understand how to know things through stories. One of my peers recently um, this week told me about the story of Doug Dietz, who is an industrial designer working for GE Healthcare. He's very smart, very capable, hard worker. He designed this award-winning MRI machine, which looks like this. And there's a lot of fancy pants 
Duke Med people here, so I'm not going to pretend like I know anything about this machine. But this was a, a multi-million dollar project. It won all kinds of awards. Um, he spent years working on this machine. This machine was the proudest accomplishment of his career, and it genuinely was an incredible innovation in medical science. It represented the culmination of generations of scientific, industrial, and technological innovation, and it was going to save lives. When he saw this machine, he thought it was magnificent. And then it came time to actually use it. He and his team in installed it in a hospital scanning suite, and he was so excited. He went over the details of it and some instructions with the hospital's technicians, and then he stepped out of the room to watch a real scan with a real patient. And he, he was on the edge of his seat. He was so excited. And that's when a little young girl walked in, holding tightly to her parents' hand, looking frail and nervous. And the parents began to worry that she, they wouldn't be able to convince this little girl to get into the machine. It was too scary looking. It was too industrial, too mechanic, too grown up. The little girl began to cry and Doug, watching from the other room, was heartbroken. This machine was the apple of his eye, but to the little girl, it was scary. She was too afraid to use it. And they came to find that most children were too afraid to use it. And so Doug spent some time working on this problem, consulting with various experts, trying to figure out a way to make the machine less scary. And what he finally decided to do was to make each machine an immersive story experience. This one became a submarine. This one became a spaceship. This one became a, a pirate ship. And all of the technicians were trained to build the story along with the children, right? When, when, when there was a big noise coming, they would say, we're going into hyperdrive. And now the big scary machine noise was just part of the adventure. The story element of these machines turned out to be just as important of an innovation as all of the industrial technology. When convincing a child that this machine was good for them, the logic wouldn't work. The cold, calculated, pro-con list adult brain was ill-equipped to comfort these children. They needed stories. Children understand that stories, unlike lectures and treatises, can pick you up and carry you away. You can explore them a million times and keep learning new things. How many of, if you have children, how many of your kids want to hear the same story over and over and over again before bed? Being a good storyteller and, and a good story hearer can also help you make sense of your own life. Stanley Hauerwas wrote that a story is a narrative account that binds events and agents together in an intelligible pattern. To tell a story often involves our attempt to make intelligible the muddle of things that we have done in order to have a self, to have a sense of ourselves. It helps to find ourselves in a story. The writers of scripture and Jesus himself had a keen sense of the story that we were a part of. The gospel of God's kingdom cannot be explained as a matter of bare facts and premises. You will not fully understand it, until you sit on the floor like a child, or even with a child, and get wrapped up in the story of it. You don't just need the facts. You need the suspense, the pain, the drama of scripture. 
Spending time with children, telling them stories and hearing stories from them can remind us what it means to sit on the floor and learn through a story. Remembering how to learn through a story can soften our hearts and prepare us to be carried away by the rest of God's story that is still to come, both in our actual lives on the ground and in cosmic history. We can't imagine how it will look, but God's story isn't over yet. It's still going somewhere. We don't, only all, we don't only look back, but we look ahead to the kingdom that God is building and to what God will do with this world. Children teach us something in this forward-looking nature as well. As an adult, we're shaped by our past. It's even built into our daily lives, right? Debts and credit scores from past borrowing shape our day-to-day concerns. Histories of difficulties and painful relationships weigh on us. Regrets and missed opportunities haunt us. But children are free from all of this. Children are eschatological beings. The poem On Children by Khalil Gibran, which Pastor Meg read for us a while back, um, says that children dwell in the house of tomorrow. Their story is ahead of them and not behind them. And they remind us to look forward into the kingdom that God is building. Their baseline nature is hope, not despair. Hope which can be hard to come by in a suffering world, but it can be found in the company of of a child. Friends, as I transition in this season into more and more adulthood, I hope you'll partner with me in in a conscious effort to remember the posture of a child. I hope you'll help me not take myself too seriously and remember how to play, to learn with curiosity and to tell stories, to look forward with hope. All of these things we can learn by spending some time in the care of children. There are some kids in my neighborhood who always wanna hang out with my dog or walk through our garden at the most inconvenient times. But I hope I can remember the value of communion with them and their families and lean into those relationships. As I transition into this more grown-up world, I hope to bring more storytelling, wonder, and hope to my stressed out adult conversations. I hope some of you will join me in some of that work. I hope some of you will seriously consider volunteering with Oak Kids. There's lots of room. Telling stories and hearing stories alongside children. And not only you might you might be thinking I'm not really a kid person. Not only is this how we care for children, but this is also how we care for knowledge. Any and all knowledge is one generation from the grave of forgetfulness. Only in its union with the mind of a child does knowledge survive. And so whether you want to care for the children of God or for the knowledge of God, you can do both by telling stories to children. And so I really encourage you to send an email to meg at oakdurham.org and, and get on the list of for godly play. Consider signing up, sign up once a month to tell a story to a child. It will feed your soul. Preaching the announcements. This this was just one long announcement for volunteer for kids. Now, friends, I I know that this, uh, this is my last sermon as an intern, but this is not a goodbye. 
my time here has been amazing. You are an incredibly welcoming community. Um, and I hope that as I stick around and, and continue in my engagement with Oak, I hope that I can join you in extending the same welcome and generosity to the next intern that we'll have and all of the people that will walk through our doors. Um, I really appreciate all of you. And this is a beautiful community. Um, and I'm excited for all of the ways that God is continuing to shape us. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we thank you that you are near and you are gentle and you are fun and you are loving. We pray that you come to us in all of the stresses that weigh on us as, as people who people depend on, as grown-ups, as people who need to make a living, as people who need to take care of others. Even as we do that work, I hope that you will remind us to do the work of children, to sit on the floor and wonder, to get caught up in the story of your gospel, and to pass this knowledge on to the next generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>